0: Welcome to the CrossLead Podcast. I'm your host, Dave Silverman. At CrossLead, we exist to help teams and individuals achieve and sustain optimal performance. In today's episode, I have the pleasure of speaking with Charlie Heron. Charlie serves as the president of the technology product experience organization within Comcast Cable. When I first met Charlie in 2015, he had just transitioned to the role of leading the Customer Experience Division, a new to team tasked with the largest MPS implementation in North America at the time. In today's episode, we focus on the leader's role in creating a compelling vision and building a narrative in support of it. We talk about his obsession with the customer and how technology can meaningfully improve a customer's life. Charlie discusses his personal routines and leadership development philosophy. We talk about his approach to leading change at scale and how you measure progress. A proud father, husband, outdoorsman, and amateur photographer, Charlie's humility and empathetic leadership style makes him a truly world-class leader. Thank you for tuning in. I hope you enjoy the conversation that I have with my friend and mentor, Charlie Harris. Good morning, good afternoon. Welcome to the Crosslead Podcast. Today, we're joined with Charlie Heron, who serves as the President of Technology Product Experience for Comcast Cable. Today, we're going to talk about leadership, and we're going to go back and talk about the leadership development from Charlie's perspective over his career. So, Charlie, thanks for joining us today. I really appreciate you being here.
1: No, thank you, David. It's uh, good to be here and appreciate it.
0: So let's, let's go through your, your life journey and example of leadership. Take me back to where you grew up and, and some of those informative early experiences in your life.
1: I grew up in a town called Ponca City, Oklahoma. My dad was a chemist. And Conoco had their big R&D facility there. So it was a good town to grow up in. Uh, a lot of opportunities for kids. Oklahoma was, you know, like most kids, I was sort of bored of where I grew up. I was really, really focused on backpacking and camping. I had read a book called uh, Walk Across America by Peter Jenkins, and it really... I, I just woke me up to the idea of, of outdoors because uh, my dad was not an outdoorsman. How old were you when you read that book? I was 13. I was 13. So actually, I read the National Geographic articles that he wrote first and then, and then, and then read the book. But you know that got me into scouting, which I joined largely because they were going backpacking in New Mexico and I wanted to do that. <laughs> um, and uh, my other passion was soccer. I played a lot of soccer. I was, uh, I'm old enough to remember it was actually the f- first time it had started in my city. So I was like on the first team. But I spent a lot of time doing that. And so I was always outside. And when I went to college, which was at the University of Washington, it was largely to go to the Pacific Northwest. Again, I had this kind of bug for being in the outdoors and I just wanted to to be someplace where I could experience a lot of adventure that way. Toyed with uh, soccer at the University of Washington, but they're far better than I am. So uh, <laughs> I, I did not go down that path.
0: <laughs> so when you got to when you got to Washington University, talk about, you know, w- what was your major? I know you were an economics major, but talk about mm-hmm. how that sort of shaped you from a, from a leadership perspective. Yeah, I went
1: into college thinking I'd be a history major and kind of pre-law kind of thing. And uh, it's a pretty good writer. And, and, and that's sort of what I was drawn to, but I ended up taking some economics classes some microeconomics classes. Mm-hmm. And I was just fascinated by the idea of evaluating how consumers make decisions, which is essentially what the, you know, that's essentially what microeconomics is. It, again, I just loved it. And so I, I kind of really leaned in, but I think from an early point in my life, I was fascinated with the idea of what consumers wanted and mm. how they evaluated their options. And, and I think that has served me well. I, I actually think as I got into the product game and, and consumer experience game and things like that, it has given me a lens that I think a lot of people just don't use or maybe think about as a first lens. And, and that's always my first lens is, you know, how would this benefit me as a consumer, how would this benefit my family as a consumer? How would this benefit you know consumers in my community? And and, and so it was really
0: formative for me. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing that your college major actually was relevant to your job. I find that to be so hard. I, I was an oceanography major in college, and uh, other than the fact that I, I liked to surf and I, I, know was, I was a Navy SEAL, like there wasn't a lot of overlap there. So the fact that you actually took core lessons from that and were able to apply it to to your, to your world is, is pretty remarkable. You come out of university and what was your first job out of college?
1: Well, my first job, uh, actually, I thought I was still going to do pre-law. I had taken the uh, LSATs and done extremely well and kind of was off to going to go to law school. Just on a whim, I interviewed at uh, Anderson. What what then was Anderson Consulting. It's Accenture now. I remember I, the, I took the interview because I was really tired of eating 19 cent boxes of macaroni. I was like really, (laughs) really living on the edge uh, in terms of finances. And I thought, well, you know, my LSATs are good for five years. I'll I'll just go to this interview. But I didn't really care because I'd been accepted to law school. And so I just sort of answered however I wanted to answer. It was a little bit like that uh, Seinfeld episode where where George Costanza (laughs) sort of says the opposite of everything he thinks he should say. And it works for (laughs) him. And it worked for me. They called me back and said, you hired. (laughs) Yeah, got me hired. (laughs) Um, And so I went into uh, Accenture, Anderson at the time, as a developer, because that's how they started everyone. You know, it was interesting to me, but I I found out pretty quickly I wasn't a great developer. But what I was really good at was requirements and interfacing with with the clients. And again, I think that sensitivity to what they really wanted and needed and, and being able to add value there that's really what, what what drove me. And so I was there for the, the typical two years and then hired on at Macaw Cellular, which was the client I was working at. It was exciting. It was an exciting time. And when was it, this prob- really, roughly? <laughs> oh, man. You're, well, it, this would have been about um, 94.
0: That 94, I okay. Yeah,
1: yeah. What I loved about it was, I don't know if you guys remember, but, you know, in the early, early days of mobile, it was seen as a huge luxury and car phones and those big Motorola brick phones. And the average consumer wasn't sort of onto it yet. But I remember in uh, employee orientation there, they showed a video where they told the story about what people really want and uh, how important communication is and how, how important mobility is. Sort of the nomad that kind of pinned it into, you know, we, we love travel. We love kind of moving around. It got me to really think about an inspiring vision about what you're doing and how you're mm-hmm. sort of aligning to age old truths about what people have always wanted. It, it opened up for me, the idea of narrative. I mean, I could keep going. I mean, at and ended up buying us that sh- I, I, I again was able to start to craft why that was good for the how that could bring mobility really to the mainstream and got to work on some really interesting projects to, to do that. It also showed me uh, some things I didn't want to ever do, which is like gigantic meetings. I remember going, there'd be four of us and like 50 others (laughs) at these, the the introduction, the introductions alone would take half an hour, but, but that got me to really start to understand teamwork and, and bringing together lots of different disciplines. And I was there for a few years and then I, then I came to Comcast. Then you came um, to Comcast.
0: Mm-hmm, yeah. Why did you
1: come to Comcast? What brought you there? Well, I mean, like uh, like a lot of people that have been fortunate in their career, I had some great mentors, and one of the mentors I had was a guy named David, and he had come from a cost cellular at AT and T, and had come over to uh, what what at the time was Comcast cellular business. They ended up selling part of that off. And he went to head the um, broadband business and he called me up and he said, you know, you should come over here. It's just like mobile, you know, mobile was in the beginning, it's seen as a luxury, but w- I really think this can, can impact people's lives. And so that's, that's what really got me over again. I, I just this notion of technology, improving people's
0: lives has really been a constant theme in my career. Yeah. You've been at the sort of the Vanguard for that and some massive, Spaces. So, what year was it that you went over to Comcast? That like late nineties, early two thousands?
1: Yeah, it was uh, 96, 96 97 okay, in
0: there. And yeah. so, broadband internet was was just sort of appearing on the yeah on the landscape. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it really okay.
1: was. And you know, we
0: didn't have you
1: know at the time that we, we, there was no self install option. We I was one of the people on the team that were that were driving that project. It was early, early days. No retail to speak of. It certainly wasn't mainstream. So again, a lot of the playbook that we had in mobile could be applied
0: to to, to this technology and, and, and this value proposition for customers. So you get to Comcast. What's your first job when you once you're there?
1: My, my my first job was business development, I think director of business development. You know, at the time, the cable companies had a, a venture with together with this group called At Home. And it was in the heyday of the internet, the, the first heyday of the internet, I should say. And and so it was a lot about, you know, establishing relationships and things like that. But when at home faced uh, financial difficulties and ultimately uh, disbanded, I was given the task of trying to figure out what our portal was going to be, email, all of that, because I'd had some coding background at Accenture, uh, you know, as a business development, you do a lot of those kinds of things. So (laughs) we decided to go it alone and stood up our own portal and email and it was Really hard, but uh, that's ultimately what became the seed for what became a lot of our interactive properties, and and ultimately our product development teams and and approach
0: was that interactive group. Awesome. So, who was your competition then when you were going alone? Was it was it the 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 Microsofts and Google's of the world?
1: Yeah, I mean, it was AOL.
0: You know, they were huge. Yeah, Yeah, I
1: remember. I remember, you know, you know, why are we trying to do this? Let's just do a deal with AOL and be done. And I'm like, well, you know, look, we're installing this stuff. It's a great touch point for our customers. Let's let's hold on to it and, and see what we can do. And and sure enough, you know, we could compete there. And we won by focusing on what we were trying to do, which was connect up homes and connect people to a vastly bigger world through broadband internet. And it was a little less about you know, being the portal. Um, It was, it was, you know, sure we had one and, 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 and we made money on it and, and things like that. But the real focus was like just connecting this home. And then we started to put services on top of our portal, like video and flash players and things like that, that were really exciting, that gave us a lot of confidence to go kind of further into the interactive space.
0: And then from BizDev, what was your next stop in your career?
1: Um, Let me think. Well, I mean, it it became product, essentially. You know, I was was running the product. Yeah, it it was, you know, running Comcast portal and interactive properties and, you know, the features that went along with them, which at that time were things like email and personal web pages and stuff like that. And and then, but that evolved into, you, you know, our working on the TV products and working on the Xfinity home products and things like that.
0: But it was, it was uh-huh. definitely starting to run product teams and user uh-huh. experience teams. I think when I met you, you just come out of having run the Xfinity program, which was at the time was the most successful product okay. that Comcast had launched, right. both from an experience standpoint and just from a technology innovation standpoint, mm-hmm. maybe, maybe talk about that experience and how that sort of shaped everything you've done since.
1: Yeah, I I think, um, you know, when we decided to redefine television and really put the experience and and delivery up in the cloud, which we call our X1 uh, experience, I did not start that. Uh, That was already started by some really smart folks. But what I did do as I was brought in, we put a new UI on it and we spent a lot of time trying to solve, you know, the, the discovery and content. Um, I I did put that in quotes, that customers have, which is there's so much on how how do I really kind of get to it quickly? How how do we make it a really welcome and and advanced sort of experience versus what existed before? And so I did run that product team. And and to your point, that was really successful. You know, I still think it's one of the the better UIs out there. And we really did it by focusing on the content itself and our mission. Our mission was A, to put a TV in every pocket, So we focused a lot on the streaming and, and, and mobile pieces. It was B to get you to your content that you want faster. And so we spent time on search and discovery and different ways to do that. Uh, Whether it's, um, you know, rotten tomato listings or whether it's we had some really cool ways of searching and then adding things like the voice remote ultimately was sort of the last thing that I was, I was involved with. And um, also looking at that screen as kind of more, than what's on TV. Like you can use that screen to, you know, see your security cameras. You can use that screen to interact with customer care, and that's still something I believe strongly in. We'll keep we'll keep doing that. But the the focus and the the mission that I I gave the team was literally, and we had it at, at the beginning of every meeting. This slide was you know, like we're here to change people's lives, and and we're here to to implement our version of innovation. And for me, innovation is not feature matching. Innovation is making someone's life better. It can be complex technology that does that, or it could be something as simple as, you know, sticky coats. But the focus is, you know, making life better. And the, the, the job of a good product person, I used to tell this story my youngest, which you've met, Maeve, she was four or five, and she was opening this present, you know, excited like a kid always is. And, and she said, I never knew I always wanted this. And I thought it was pretty, I thought that's exactly what a good product person should be doing. And so the idea that we're constantly trying to figure out ways of making someone excited about what they're using and have them to start to think, like, I can't imagine my life without this. Like, what did I do yeah. before? It's just such a, it was such a, it still gets me super excited just thinking about it. And so, and so that is my passion and spent a lot of time there. And, and based on that success, they said, Hey, we have another problem for you, which is the customer experience uh, piece that we've been trying to turn around for a while. Could you come in and, and focus on that? And I remember when I first got that gig, lots of things. First of all, that's where I, I, I met Crosslead and you, but I remember getting a lot of questions like, well, look, you're not the customer care guy. Like, what? You don't have customer service experience. Why are you in this role? Right. And right. my point of view was, well, customer service is what happens when the experience breaks. So right. Right. we're going to go fix the experience, which is in the product. Right. It's in the sales journey. It's in all of those things. And yeah. how do we make those things better so that customer service is reserved for those truly important times when you need it? And look, we've got a lot. We've got a lot to go, for sure. But we made good progress. And what attracted me to that opportunity, with Neil Smith, who brought it to me, was it was really the chance to change or influence a culture. I wouldn't say change because I think the the, the Comcast has always been really focused on customers and, and wanting to, to do right by them. But it was a chance to influence a, a culture so that. You could put some of the metrics around customer experience a little more, uh, f- you know, in the the decision making in, in the business, and so that was really I, I view that as sort of my experience with sort of culture and bringing people along together. Like, how do you bring, you know, tens of thousands of people along on this journey and and get them to think about it uh, similarly and, and and value the same things? And uh, then recently, I've I've been back in the product world.
0: Been um, back in the so product world
1: yeah
0: yeah yeah it's it's a remarkable story i remember i remember the first time i came downstairs on a weekend when i told my kids they could go watch a show and i I just sort of marveled at how they they navigated to a a show Mm -hmm. and i'm like and my son can't read and so that voice remote was was like i think i was hacking the system by just talking into it and he was like (laughs) yep that got me to the the picture i wanted and then then i was able to click and much to my like horror, I was like, "Wow, he, with the, you know, he's now fully exposed to the whole world pretty quickly." So, to the extent that you want your product to work for a five-year-old, like mission accomplished, that was pretty pretty remarkable. Go back to the vision statement. I think that's really, I think that's a really interesting point. Like to dig in on a lot of times, you know, you know, part of the role of the leader is to inspire people towards the, a new vision. The fact I, I'd love to hear more how you think about the repetitiveness, how often you need to do that to sort of actually unlock that capability set for an organization.
1: Yeah, I think what I learned was a lot of us, I think, make the, the, the mistake. We put we, we put effort into these mission statements. Maybe you see them once or twice a year. You know, you, you couldn't walk around the halls of m- most companies and ask them what the, what the mission statement is, what they're there to do, why are they there, and hear similar things. You'd hear very, very different things. I don't know if you always hear the exact same thing. But I learned that pretty early on. Uh, Jim Barksdale was the president at McCaw Sailor, and he had brought a lot of things from his time at FedEx in terms of how you shape culture. And I just remember being struck by how everyone embraced it because they used it all the time because they saw it. it was in front of them all the time. And so uh, when I was really trying to build out the, a product culture at, at Comcast, the idea that people need to have purpose in in what they're doing, and it, it's not just a job. It's not just working on technology. It's not just writing code or creating a design. You're doing it for an end goal, and having an inspirational end goal is a important so that everyone's excited about what they're doing, and b is something I learned from from you guys. Having a common mission and a common understanding allows you to make better decisions down uh, in the trenches and within the teams. And so that to me was, was, was really important. And, and what I found is you just can't do it once in a while. You literally have to repeat it all the time, which is like all, all my time. all hands. Yeah. All the time. You can't say it enough. And so I've taken that to heart and, and really think if you're going to try to build a different culture or really get people to live up to your mission, they have to see it constantly. It can't just be at the budget time or, on a poster in the break room. You, you, you really need to sort of reinforce it and, and show that you're living it and show that you're excited about it.
0: Yeah, no, 100%. If you think about the uh, probably the most influential leadership lesson from from these last couple of experiences at Comcast, maybe tell a story around it that really helps 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 the audience personalize it if you could. <sighs>
1: I probably should have thought about this a little more. I mean, uh, there's so many. I'm the kind of person that thinks about these moments and I just dwell on them all the time. (laughs) I I will say one thing I learned about, well, two things. One is I was in my early forties because I, before I really, and I'm in my early fifties now, before I really realized that leadership was a discipline you could practice and try different hats on. I assumed prior to that, that people were either natural leaders or they weren't. And yeah. And, and so I went through some leadership courses and uh, center for creative leadership uh, was one. And I realized, you know, it's, it's, it's a lot about what you're saying to the team, how you're listening to the team. It's a lot about communications and you should try some things. And so I forced myself in these all hands to try to be a better speaker, to try to, you know, I, I tried a lot of different things. And, and so That's one. One is that, you know, I came to realize that leadership was something that you could practice and you should look to others, read books about it, and et cetera. I just, uh, it wasn't in my sort of DNA at that time. It is now. And uh, one of the, uh, there's been so many great leaders that I've worked for, but one that stuck with me because he was very different was Neil Smith. And what I remember from him was sort of just an unwavering courage and optimism about the mission and just, extreme focus but done in a way that was very friendly and collegial and, and collaborative. I remember when he offered me the CX role, he, he, said, I think this is going to be a lot of fun. It's also going to be really hard. And so, you know, I'm thinking to myself, okay, Niels, uh, he, He's a seal, former seal. So if he says something's going to be hard, it's going to be really <laughs> hard. <laughs>
0: but that, but, yeah. but that got me excited. And I remember You're that like, was what, the what moment. What do you mean by hard? Neil, I, I wonder <laughs> exactly. if we have a scale for what this. Yeah, that's good. Yeah.
1: <laughs> exactly. But I remember the look in his eyes; like he's genuinely jazzed about it. And that was the moment I flipped. I was like, okay, I'm all in. And and, oh, and so the leadership vision or leadership principle, I learned from that. And there were others, obviously great, great mentors I've had the fortune to work for. But I just took that to heart and said, you know what? The role of a leader is to lead and to model the behavior they want to see. And I think he did that really well. And, and so it doesn't serve a leader well to sort of get down or or, or get exasperated or you know they, they really got to show that they are excited about what they're doing. And confident that it can be done. And, and so that's one lesson I've definitely taken, taken to heart.
0: Talk to me about your, your personal habits, like how you sort of set yourself up for your day, for your week, for your month, for your for your year. Like are there specific things that you do that are so unique to you that might might be <laughs> perceived as quirky? <laughs> no I would say uh yeah I do have a bit of a
1: a habit I don't know if it's quirky though but it's it's what I don't have is i think what i inspire or uh, aspire to which is sort of you probably wake up early and work out really hard and and <laughs> get your day going I do that in spurts and actually during this pandemic i've been i've been pretty good so my day typically starts at five or earlier uh, I sleep less as I get older but and I'm not a kind of guy that can get up right away and work out. I'm just not. And so the, the one habit that I do have, which my wife teases me, but she calls it puttering around. But, uh, you know, I get my coffee, I read some email and I always, I always read the news uh, or, or watch the news, BBC or something like that, or NBC. For me, it's just having an hour and a half of quiet time to kind of think about the day. And actually, a lot of the stuff I think about, I process emails and stuff like that, but a lot of the stuff I think about is what we've talked about a little here today, which is like, how am I going to sort of, ex, you know, support the narrative I'm, I'm telling in the meetings that I have today? You know, where, where are there opportunities to influence, you know, towards the mission of what we're trying to do? It's, it's a bit of a reminder of really what I'm all about and what I'm here to do. I love that. And then, you know, That's awesome. and then, you know, I have during, especially during COVID because I'm not an early morning workout person. I did start blocking seven to eight to work out. So I've been pretty good about that. But other than that, I don't have a lot of like uh, you know, quirky habits or, well, I probably have a lot of quirky habits, but not on a daily basis. <laughs> but, uh, no, I'm, uh, and then I'm a big family guy. I've got four kids. So in the, in the evening, uh, you know, try to get as much done during the day so that I can have some time with them. You know, we're big, big family dinner people.
0: Oh, that's great. That's great. Yeah. If you go back to your early days as a as a scout, and I know I know you were very successful, you went on to 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 get your eagle your eagle scout badge. Maybe talk about what was like one of the core takeaways that you still leverage today from from those experiences as a as a child.
1: I, you know, I would think. It, well, first of all, I was, again, very focused on the camping aspects of being a scout. So to me, it was, it was about getting a bunch of skills that I wasn't going to be able to get, at, you know, from, from my dad. And, you know, I would say, and I went on, my, my son is an Eagle Scout. And I went on to help with his troop. I, I would say what I took from it was a, a notion of civic responsibility and just just the idea of, you know, doing things for your community. I did not, um, and we've talked a lot about it. I did not go on to, you know, serve in the forces or anything like that, which has been a, a minor regret of mine. But I do feel like, as a as a person in society, we we owe something to the community, and I think I, I, that scouting experience fostered that. And then I would say, as an adult leader in the Scouts, when my son was in it, what I was amazed by is just how accomplished and thoughtful these young uh, men and, and women can be and and the potential is, is so much greater than i think we give kids credit for and uh so i was i was truly inspired by the accomplishments of some of these you know 16 17 15 year olds in terms of what they knew about you know everything you know they just
0: attacked it and with such a curious mind. And so that was, that was really inspiring to me. Yeah, it's awesome. I mean, obviously the whole be prepared piece plays in, it sounds like you do that every morning. Uh, your routine. Yeah. I love the fact that you connect, you take the time to be thoughtful about your day and looking at the various interactions you're going to have and saying, all right, how do I take that, that vision and weave that into these meetings? That's, 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 that's extremely thoughtful it makes a ton of sense and probably a practice that everybody could, could probably apply. I think you can take that into sort of your, your, your goals too. Uh,
1: Again, I'm a big believer in keeping track and keeping score. And so every quarter, what did I say my goals were? How am I grading myself? And I, you know, send that to my boss and one, it helps the scope creep. It helps to remind your boss what you said you were going to do. And two, it keeps you honest and it makes you a person of your word. And transparency, look, I'm not, I'm not getting this goal done and for these reasons, but
0: uh, I think it's important to constantly revisit what you're, what you're trying to do. You talked earlier, or we've talked earlier about, you know, the importance of teams and, and sort of your, your sort of development around those concepts specifically in the CX role. Cause I, I think it was, it, it was an interesting, I think it'd be good for the audience to hear kind of the uniqueness of that position because it, you weren't really in charge of anything, right. But you mm-hmm. had influence over sort of everything. And so you really had to work in that distributed, almost team of teams mentality. Maybe maybe talk a little bit more about you know some of the key things you took away from trying to drive a transformation from a, a centralized resource with a very strong incumbency in, in the you know and the respective silos and disciplines of the organization.
1: Yeah, uh, and to me that was a really fun moment uh, actually. And I'm not saying this just because I'm, I'm on a cross podcast, but as you know, the story was you guys had given me the galleys of team of teams to read. And I was, I was away on a vacation. And, and I, so I had the CX role and I had some ideas of things I wanted to do, but the the piece that I hadn't figured out is like, how am I really going to get all of these different disciplines to, to chase the same vision and figure out how to do that. And in reading that book, it, it, I was so excited. Like I wanted to leave a vacation right away. Cause for me, it unlocked the idea that, you can create a shared consciousness and greater context around a mission with some pretty simple communication tools, some simple sort of uh, team decision-making tools. And so that was, and and, you know, you were there as we launched, uh, you know, what we called the CX Forum, which was our sort of all company once a week meeting where we invited everyone to participate. Uh, And what it taught me was, the context is so critical to the team's making decisions and it can turn things from adversarial into sort of pure alignment uh, with just understanding a little more context. And I, that's, that's something I'm really driving as I focus on teamwork now. Very smart folks on the team, all very focused on their area of the business not coming together regularly to understand other people's parts of the business. This notion of like quarterly business reviews where everyone sits in. And again, I pull those lessons from from CX that if you really want to give people the license to do what you want them to ultimately do, you need to give them full context and a very clear mission that we all agree on. And once that happens, magic, because you, you know, it just starts running itself. That, that's what I learned. You know, one of the things that I I chose, why I chose the NPS system to implement was not, it's sure the score is important and the question is important. But to me, there were two factors that were the most important that I wanted to kind of get into the culture. One was the idea of following up with customers, calling them, you know, getting more feedback from them and using that rich, rich data to, one, solve their problems, but then start to really look at it at a, 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 their own priorities. Yeah. I mean, I think it's really easy to, to look at machine data and believe your own data. Mm-hmm. You can't argue people's perception because that's what they have, you know? And so right. that's important right. to have their perception as, as a measure or a marker of, of where they are with your brand. The other component and the most exciting component was this notion of ENPS, the employee NPS about what you're doing. And mm-hmm. what you do in that process is you surface, you have them surface at a very local level issues that are keeping them from accomplishing the mission. And you address them. And what I liked about NPS is it put everyone at, at a senior leadership team on notice and accountable for solving those problems. They have to list to the, you know, because we, we elevate them, we track them, we make sure everyone knows them. And it's basically an insurance policy to make sure you're listening to your, to your employees because they know what to do. They want to do right. And they know how to solve the problem and you've got to sort of listen to them. Yeah. And so that was, that was really important. And I think the whole CX journey also taught me just the importance of, you know, your frontline workers in terms of listening to their ideas and trying to make their job easier so they can do the job that you want them to do, which is take care of the customer. And, uh, yeah. that to me is the more important than any kind of score is, is that we have a system now. And, and when I walk, well, I guess I haven't walked through the halls in a while, but when I used to walk through the halls, the things that made me the most proud about that whole period of my career was hearing people in meetings, talking about NPS as part of their decision-making or product feature or whatever. And it's in every single meeting in every single function you know, legal, finance, billing. And that to me was, uh, okay. It's part of our DNA. It's part of our
0: culture. That's the the, yeah. the most proud thing I,
1: I have of that whole period.
0: Yeah. That's a great example of culture change right there and, yeah. and being able to sort of manage it. And it's hard to quantify culture. Oftentimes it's sort of like oxygen. You don't really notice it until it's missing. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, when you get, th- when you get those insights, just by walking around, we used to call it in the line, right. You go out in the in the foxholes and the front lines and just sort of hear what the men and women are talking yeah. about. And and when you hear them repeating back narratives that you're trying to push to the top, you feel you feel great. Yeah. <laughs> the yeah. label like, well, who you are, like, it's not important who I am, it's important what you're saying. And that's great. That's awesome. Okay. As you think about uh, so I mean that's it's a good segue into you know, the last year and a half have been incredibly challenging for a lot of people. And I know, you know, specifically the work environment. I'd love to hear, mm-hmm. you know. Specifically, how you guys have sort of dealt with the pandemic and and how you're thinking about your team and, and as, as it sort of returned to work opportunities start to present, how you're thinking about best practice coming out of that? Well, the first thing is
1: we've always placed employee safety as a, as a super high priority. So that has guided everything for us. And uh, so early on, you know, it was like, all right, how do we keep our employees safe and still try to accomplish the things we want to do as a business and get customers hooked up to, you know, because now they're even more uh, focused on, on uh, staying connected. So uh, one of the things I'm really proud of is we moved, you know, tens of thousands of employees to work from home within 60 days. And we did it in a secure way with a scalable VPN and a lot of creative technologists and just hard elbow grease to get that done. And with the, with the idea that we can make them productive and happy at home and not place them in harm's way by having them come into sort of open floor playing call centers and things like that. So that I think it, it, going in, we didn't know how easy or hard. It, well, we knew it was going to be hard. We didn't know how successful we were going to be, but we were very successful. Mm-hmm. And I think the employees reflected that in terms of uh, we, we love that you, you're focused on us, that you're focused on our safety and health. and then. Talking about doing doing a good job, and as as, a, as an employee, and I, I just think that that was such a proud moment for us to be able to do that. The other the other one was, you know, uh, again, some you know, the the network performed really well amidst a huge surge in traffic, and we were able to deploy some really smart technology and AI into our network to to make sure that it continued to do that. And, and so I think it it showed us that. Preparing your core assets and applying technology in a smart way, uh, f- you know, for these unexpected moments is just so critical. So we learned that about ourselves as we think about coming back to the office. You know, first of all, working remotely and and using the software we use as Microsoft Teams, just <clears throat> I think it surprised everyone. We uh, how good it was. Uh, in terms of being able to accomplish our goals, launch products remotely, you know, gathers a team to, to make decisions. It was just really a positive experience. Okay. And so as we come back into the office, because we do feel like, you know, the collaboration and co-location and things like that are very important. We'll be we'll understand how to be more flexible. But I, I think what it's taught us is the importance of distributed locations. How do you include, you know, your your development centers in in India, or Israel, or or, or or Denver, and really bring the teams together, that's been a lesson we've learned. But I think as we go back, we're looking forward to getting back and being together and, and driving those that, that teamwork. But we'll, we'll have some tools, some extra tools to be even more connected and even more flexible when we need to be.
0: Awesome. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I was having this conversation with some some other executives recently, as they think about navigating this, and I think a lot of a lot of people, specifically then in a position to make decisions around this, are, are sort of wrestling with: is it back to five days, or is it only going to be a hybrid, or whatever else? And you know, my my, my thought is, once people learn a new skill and learn new muscle, like they're, they they they're never going to go back to exactly the way it was. Mm-hmm. they are just going to have an expanded you know toolkit to do stuff. And I still think the most effective form of communication is in person, face to face. Yeah. So for those you know those those really you know high impactful sessions that are needed, there's, there's still going to be a requirement to do that. But I, I think we've all learned that there's the ability to sort of operate, like you said, in a distributed manner and be effective. Going back to, you know, the team of team story for a second, you know, we we set up our physical infrastructure around the globe, realizing that the majority of the people that need to be involved in the night's operation, were not going to be physically present, not because of some mm-hmm. pandemic, just because of right, right. You know, the laws of physics and, and, and distributed. So we actually designed our spaces with that in mind meaning like we knew that our, most of our conversation was going to be have to be in a virtual setting mm-hmm. and the people in the room were important but you know it was we, trying to over index to make sure they were inclusive it was interesting what i love about what i love about how teams and when you go to fully virtual is now everybody has the same experience because they're through a common platform but right. like coming back to some hybrid model where you're going to you're probably going to have a scenario where you got some people in the room and other people out of the room but you still got to get the same thing done it'll be interesting to see how people people sort of navigate that, but that was like, you know, a critical insight because it was just a constraint that existed for us. So it wasn't an option to have it the other way.
1: Yeah. I I think uh, two things. One is uh, we're also sort of retooling our rooms for this notion of a more inclusive environment with remote workers, whether they're individually remoting or, or as I mentioned, uh, uh, one of our dev locations the, the key, one of the things that we're doing, which is the key thing that I think everyone feels like they really miss was this, especially on the engineering side, was this kind of whiteboarding. Uh, I, I think the virtual whiteboard yeah. uh, is just hard. I uh, see so yeah, you have hard. your whiteboard there. So one of the things we're doing is setting up cameras on the whiteboards and we'll see how we're going to, how that goes. And we're going to, we're going to start going in some of us uh, just to test it out here yeah. in, in a little bit, mm-hmm. but I do think, I, I think the second thing is I think all of the participants of a meeting are going to be a lot more in tune with the fact that there are remote folks. Prior to COVID, we had to have all these sort of, we tried to have these rules of, Hey, if you've got someone remote, don't forget to ask them their opinion. You know, we had these, <laughs> you know, sure. don't close that meeting without asking anyone on the phone, you know, their thoughts, that kind of thing. Cause we were trying to reinforce yeah. this notion of don't forget, and I think that won't be a problem anymore. So I'm looking forward to um, yeah, that's better great. better better team cohesion. But it is going to be, a, you know, we don't know yet. We're we're going to learn our way through it, like like most like most other companies.
0: Awesome. Yeah. So um, two two last questions, sorry. First of all, what you know, what are you guys working on now? Like, what are your top, you know, key priorities? And you know, on your own leadership development, like, what do you what are you kind of like focusing on or finding time to read or think about now? <laughs>
1: Well, um, as I I set up the the structure, really trying to figure out how do I drive more contextual, better alignment with the teams, including some of our stakeholder uh, partners. That's like not a new problem, but uh, I'm making sure that we... persistent one that you've always got to work on and you can always get better at. And I think it doesn't get better without a very intentional way of doing it. So I'm looking at, um, some training to help with that. You know, I, I think, you know, a lot of the, we, we did a lot of listening, uh, sessions with our DE and I efforts. Listening sessions are actually part of NPS. We call them huddles. So some of the training I'm looking at is, um, how to have conversations. How do you have really honest, hard conversations, but not in an adversarial way. And there's, there's some uh, good uh, material out there. So I'll, I'm going to be kind of focused on that. And then the second thing uh, we're focused on is how do we really set our, ourselves up for the future of what the home is going to be and spending a lot of time really looking at like, really, really what a customers going to want in the home. How are they going to, what kinds of entertainment are they going to want and uh, kind of getting back to some, some strategies. One of the things I'm, I'm, interested in doing is, is driving sort of a 10 year strategy cycle, uh, within the group. Um, a lot of companies will do five year plans or three year plans. Um, and how do you sort of have a rolling ten year kind of plan on, on, again, less about the finances, but more about where we think consumer trends are going to be and how do we really make sure that we're applying, um, our innovation and our resources in a smart way to make sure that those are seen and and worked into our products uh, in a real way. So those are sort of the, the two big sort of uh, new cultural things I'm working on. And then other than that, we're going to keep driving, connecting homes, you know, and people, whether it's uh, some of the mobile products we're launching now or, or a good old broadband and and some of our new forms of entertainment. You know, it's just it's a busy, busy world as you as you know. Lots of uh, product changes, but it's exciting. And so you know, continuing to focus on what we want to do and not kind of chasing what others are doing is always a, a battle. So making sure that you're staying true to what you think you can build is
0: is, is key to me. That's great. That's great. What's the most recent like book you've read? Or movie you've seen, or show you've watched, or something that's that you know you found interesting that maybe the audience could go benefit from.
1: Let's you know, I out.
0: was trying to look at. The, I was trying to look up the title of this
1: book I read. I, I will get it to you, but um, it, it was really about uh, successful leaders um, and CEOs and how they thought about capital allocation. And again, I apologize. I can't think of the title. I need to look at it. Up what was the it's main been, theme of the couple book? Months. The main theme was: look here, are eight uh, CEOs, and they were some of the most successful. CEOs in history, and they may not have been the, the high flying ones you've heard of, but they really returned shareholder value because they thought constantly about how they were allocating capital and uh, just sort of the thought process that they went through. And I think that is uh, increasingly uh, something that uh, I'm certainly spending more time thinking about as well, because you do, you have to shut down some things to start new new things. And that's hard. Uh, but, you know, the, the people that Either through instinct or, in this case, uh, you know, just really good uh, studying of of where things are going, they've been able to make those those, those choices. So
0: I, I apologize, I don't have the the name of the book, but I'll I'll no worries. We'll we'll make sure we it. capture it in the uh, yeah in the follow up notes. That's awesome, yep. though. It's awesome, and and I think it it makes a ton of sense. You know, thinking about prioritization in how you make some decisions you know, at the local level, but then at the more strategic level where you're at, it really comes down to where you're going to make bets capital-wise and, and right. figuring out the right process right. that's actually driving that 10-year vision you're talking about is, is really important. Well, Troy, thanks so much for taking time with us today. We really appreciate it. It was awesome having you on the, the Crosslead podcast. Any final thoughts or comments?
1: No, I, I, again, I I appreciate uh, and honored that you asked me to, to participate. I've learned so much from listening to others talk about their uh, experiences. I've certainly learned a lot from, from you just hope, hopefully it can be helpful to someone. Again, the, the notion of high performing teams and how you organize that is, is to your point, it's a
0: persistent problem. So I think you're doing good work and it's, 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 it's critical. If, if the listeners want to learn more about you or, or follow you, is there even a way to do that given uh, your role your and position? <laughs> um, <laughs> PR people are going to love this question.
1: <laughs> yeah. I, honestly, uh, you know, I, I'm not active on all the social media platforms. So I think you'd probably just need to look for, I, I know that, uh, you know, I've got some, some of my keynotes out there, you can watch them. And, you know, once COVID kind of gets better and, and we're traveling more, I'm sure I'll be, I'll be doing some conferences and things like that. Awesome. Appreciate it. All right.
0: Well, thank you, Charlie. Right. I really appreciate you spending time with us today. Likewise. take, take care. care. One more thing before we finish the episode. The Crosslead Podcast is produced by the team at Truthwork Media. I want to make this the best leadership podcast available, so I would love to get your feedback. Our goal this season is to have authentic conversations with special operators, business leaders, and thought leaders on the topics of leadership and agility. If you have any feedback, suggested topics, or leaders that you want to hear from, please email me at contact at crosslead.com. If you found this episode interesting, please share it with a friend and drop us a rating. Until next time, thank you for joining